Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Wednesday Conversation. I'm Bethany Gilbert, and I'm here with Pastor Bob Thune and Pastor Dusty White of Quorum Deo Church and Pastor Chris Hemmelman of First City Church. Every Wednesday, we sit down to talk about how the gospel of Jesus Christ connects to the questions and issues of everyday life. Today is Third Wednesday Theology, and we are reading The Christian Family, chapters 7 and 8. Welcome to Third Wednesday Theology, where we engage with Herman Bovink. And chapter 7 of this work has to do primarily with marriage. Chapter 8 of this work has to do with what Bovink is going to call nurture. And if you just think about the debate between nature and nurture, that's kind of what he's getting at. It's just like, how much does the family environment shape who human beings are? And what role does it play in sort of shaping citizens of a society? So we want to take these in order. There's a lot to cover here. And here's what I felt like reading this is, number one, and Bavik, he writes about these in such an interesting way. We're just like, you, if you read a book on this topic today, it would not be near this interesting. He also is a man of his times. You feel like some of the, some of the generalizations he makes, I'm just like, I'm not <laughs> sure that you, I'm not sure you can say that, Herman. Um, <laughs> Come on, Herman. He certainly lived in a day where there were much more general stereotypes about like what men's work is and what women's work is or what a man's role and and a woman's role in the home is. And so what I'm fascinated by is some of those stereotypes we need to be challenged by just because they're different from how we tend to see the world. And we also need to be able to critique them when appropriate. So I always read a chapter like this and I say, well, I don't know that everything he sort of generalizes as appropriate to men and appropriate to women that we would see it the same way. But I like being challenged by someone who's a hundred years outside of our moment. And so can sort of say things the way my great grandparents would have said them. And I can go, okay, I wouldn't think about it that way. So I need to be challenged by it. He begins with this amazing statement. All good enduring reformation begins with ourselves and takes its starting point in one's own heart and life. That could be a whole podcast right there. I just love the reality that like, hey, any real reformation begins with you. And so what he's trying to say, remember the, he ended the last chapter by talking about all the various prescriptions for how do we solve the problems between the sexes. And where he starts this chapter is to say, it really needs to start with each of us in our own personal souls. And so all the people who say, if we just changed society, if we had different policies, if we, you know, treated people in this way or that way, that that would solve the problem. He says, basically, the average non-Christian approach to change is always outside in. And the biblical approach to change is always inside out. It always starts with me, my own personal repentance. And what does it mean for me to respond as an individual human being before God and then live in obedience to God in the life that he's given me. I also love how he makes the point that with that type of change, there's no need to like remove impediment. You can just go right at it where he says, if if you're trying to go for change on the outside, there's usually issues and structures that are kind of getting in the way and can slow that down. But I mean, if you want to see change happen soon, sooner rather than later, start with yourself. Here's a statement that would be controversial today that wasn't controversial in Herman's day. People and nations were very different from each other in various times. But the man has always been a man, and the woman has always been a woman. It's good to be reminded. <laughs> it's, it's, job. it's good to be reminded of there some are common two sense. sexes, men and women. He goes on to say, nevertheless, we can both underestimate and overestimate this distinction. So one of the things he's going to do is say, here's how, we under, here's how we flatten that distinction, and then here's how we make too much out of the distinction. 
and he, I think he's covering sort of both the conservative error and the liberal error there, right? The, the, the sort of more conservative error is to make too much of the distinction between men and women so that we denigrate one or the other or see one or the other as a, as a problem. And the liberal error is generally to make too little of that distinction. So it's sort of like there's no real difference between men. It's and all women. the same. Yeah. And he kind of wants to steer a middle road here. I want to dive in on page 66 because I wrote a blog post about this long ago that was one of the most argued about things I ever wrote in the history of my writing career. And it was about whether God has a gender. And I had a bunch of like really interesting people interacting with my blog back at that time. Here's how Bovink says it. Scripture speaks in a very human way about the essence of God, but it never transfers the sexual differentiation to him. God is never portrayed or presented as being feminine. But if the woman is said to be created along with man in the image of God, then that includes the fact that the uniqueness and richness of feminine qualities, no less than those of masculine capacities, find their origin and example in the divine being. God is a father who takes pity on his children, but he also comforts like a mother comforts her son. There's an important distinction he's making there, which is to say that Scripture uses both masculine and feminine imagery and metaphors to speak of God's love for his people. And yet, God doesn't have sexual differentiation. So there are, since both men and women bear the image of God, the fullness of our humanity is reflected in the being of God. But obviously God is not a sexed being, not a gendered being. So that's a really helpful way, I think, of sort of thinking about the way Scripture speaks of the nature of God and the ways that both men and women bear the image of God and reflect the nature of God in different ways. All right, he spends a long time in this chapter talking about some of the, you know, the differences between men and women. Uh, Chris, do you feel like he threaded that needle or not really? So there are things about it that I, I loved. Lots of, lots of points where I, I'm like, I don't, I mean, I have to think about that more. I don't know if he's right or wrong, but what, what I really, really thought was provoking is he's trying to tease out though we have a shared humanity in what ways are we distinct? And I think, especially in our culture today where everything is flattened an attempt, even if I don't necessarily agree with all the nuances an attempt to try to tease out the distinctions I think is admirable. Yes. And I think even if we do maybe disagree on some specifics, it's worth wrestling with of like, okay, if, if we think he's wrong, why do we think he's wrong? I think we, 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 he's a thoughtful enough writer and thinker that he warrants a thoughtful response. So I, I enjoyed reading this and, and we were talking about before we turned the mics, like, do we, do we necessarily agree with all the distinctions he makes? I don't know. I, I, I don't, some of these I haven't thought enough about to say whether I agree or disagree with. All right. Let me read you a paragraph just to get it. So you as a listener can get a sense of the kinds of things Bovink wants to differentiate or talk about here. Both man and woman are beautiful. Both display the features of the image of God in which they are created. To the man belongs the strength of physical prowess, the wide chest, the commanding eye, the full beard, the powerful voice. To the woman belongs a delicate shape, sensitive skin, full bosom, round shape, soft voice, long hair, elegant carriage, and supple movement. He engenders respect. She engenders tenderness. In terms of beauty, Michelangelo's Moses is not inferior to Raphael's Madonna. What's interesting there is he's drawing on these artistic 
renderings from Michelangelo and Raphael to say that, yeah, even in art, you see sort of like the characteristic masculine form and the characteristic feminine form. And we all acknowledge those are different forms and they do have a different kind of beauty. Um, but, you know, you you could take issues like, so is he saying if I have short hair, I'm not, <laughs> the, yeah. I'm not a woman. Yeah, yeah, you know, yeah, and if yeah. I don't have a the powerful voice, I'm not a man. You know, there's there's ways this can become yeah. a little bit flattened in ways that aren't helpful. As one who does not have a powerful voice, <laughs> I was offended. <laughs> but what I loved, though, is where he, he sort of landed of, hey, these qualities, like what are they meant to evoke? And if you think about the qualities of a man and you go, what, what are they intended to evoke? You think mm. respect, like this sense of stature, and you're like, that he's onto something there. And if you think of the the qualities, feminine qualities of a woman, like the tenderness, the beauty, there's that's something I'm gonna get myself in trouble. So I need to be careful about what I say. But when you think you think of those ideal qualities of a female and the the idea of tenderness, it's like this thing is beautiful, beautiful, it's delicate, it's worthy of caring for, protecting. Um there, yep. here come here come the emails, but but it but it is meant to evoke something that this is precious, this is beautiful, and well, so there's there's different sort of the 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 provoking nature of these qualities. I, I love what he does with that. And it, to your point, Chris, we probably need to think more about those distinctions rather than less. Yeah, because in yep. our day and age, it's like if you say there's any difference between men and women, you're like you're you're a misogynist or you're a bigot or whatever. And actually, we need to think carefully about. What are the differences and how do we then live together as men and women created in the image yeah. of God? Yeah. Now he goes on, he spends a lot in this chapter talking about marriage and Dusty. I was curious how you, cause he, he basically talks about singleness. He talks about engagement. He talks about choosing a spouse. He talks about getting married. And then he talks about sins to which husband and wife are exposed in married life, which I thought was like the most humorous part of the chapter. Cause basically what he's saying is, um, Often, husband and wife are each other's cross. That's how he says it. Yeah. And he basically says, you're going to fall in love with somebody and think they're amazing, and then you're going to marry them, and you're going to realize, oh, man, this person's sin really bugs me. And he, he, the way he describes that, I thought it was like, this is really, really good for people to read in, in like engagement. To exactly. Say like, hey, know what you're going to be entering into here, because I know you love this person. I know they're great, but also, they're a sinner, and you need to go in knowing that your sin is going to offend them and their sin is going to affect you. And that's part of what marriage is. I thought the same thing after reading chapter seven, I thought, uh, we should probably include this chapter in premarital counseling just because it talks so boldly about some things that, that show up later on in marriage. Let me read you some, I'd just like listeners to hear Herman's own words. In marriage, the virtues find an especially favorable opportunity to unfold and be developed, but the faults and weaknesses are also nowhere more clearly expressed or exposed to the light as in the intimate circle of the family. Many a husband who appears great and strong in the eyes of other people is weak in his home, petty and narrow-minded. And many a wife who seems like an angel when she is visiting others in her own home is a pest to her husband. <laughs> who shall comprehend such wandering in marital life? And who shall count the sins committed so often by husband and wife against each other? In this connection, Scripture is the only book that speaks the truth and sees reality clearly. Scripture holds accountable those who are married, grips them in their conscience, and calls them back to the law and to the testimony. To the husband and to the wife, Scripture directs a particular and serious admonition. I just think he's clear-eyed about the fact that yep, your sin is going to affect your spouse, and so you need to have a broad view for how the gospel needs to shape your marriage. 
and that's why I think this is really good reading because he mentions the blessing and the burden of marriage. And until you're actually married, you're always wanting to get married. And so, and so you don't know what's going on until you're actually married. And then you experience those things that he's mentioning. Yeah. He does this great job on page 74, where he, he talks about that whole experience of seeing that person and falling in love and the pursuit and the getting to know for like all just kind of the excitement and the emotion that all that just kind of stirs. And then he comes to this, this point where he says on all these experiences, marriage sets the crown. It is the apex of human life, the ultimate goal of years of effort, the victory after a long struggle, the destination after a long preparation. So he, he talks about it in this very a beautiful way that, that, Hey, marriage is this exciting crown after you kind of go through this period of, of kind of pursuit, pursuit and courtship and dating or whatever you want to call it. And it's beautiful and it's awesome. But then he, he also makes that point of how, how many poems and how many songs sort of stop there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they, they stop. This has been achieved. It's the, the wedding day and then it stops, but there's this whole reality of marriage and that's where he gets into the realism of it all. So I love how Bob Inch both points at the sort of the height and the beauty of it, but also, hey, this is really hard, and Scripture is honest about both. Page 75, in the modern era, as the notion of sin is slipping away, the culpability for every misery is being sought outside the person and located in the institutions, in social circumstances, in the organization of the state. All deliverance is naturally expected from social and political reform. But conscience speaks a different language within every person who seriously examines himself. Conscience lays the blame not on the institutions of society and state, but on the person himself. And that seems to be the battle Bovink is fighting in a lot of this, is just to say the progressive answer is different policies, different outside-in approaches. The Christian answer always comes back to, what does it mean for me to walk in integrity before God, to repent of my own sin? and to be obedient to Christ. And that's a timeless argument. Yeah. All right, let's move to the chapter of uh, about nurture because, and if, by the way, if you want to think more and read more, I mean, Chris, Chris is right about that chapter uh, on marriage. You know, Bovink says a lot that we need to be challenged by about just the differences between men and women. Uh, not all of it will you agree with, but it is challenging and helpful to think about this chapter on nurture I found even more provocative because Bovink stands in this tradition that's both Protestant and Catholic that sees the family as the foundational principle of society. So it's sort of like you start with a family or a household, and then you get to an extended family, and then you get to a clan, and then you get to a whole society. And so he he continues to speak as though the primary nurturing environment for every human being is in the context of a family. And what's interesting to me is in this chapter, I think you start to see the connections between a Christian understanding of human formation and how it does affect social policy. Because one of the things Bovink mentions is that what you see in every progressive society, and remember he's writing in 1908 or 1912, and so he's writing at a very different time in history, but the same influences are in play. And he says, what you see is always the state trying to say, hey, since some kids have bad families, and since we all know of families that are abusive or where parents are absent or where there's all kinds of chaos and destruction, 
the answer to that is the state should take responsibility for raising kids. And so we should have state mandated daycare and state, you know, there should be more and more interventions where the state sort of takes that job away from parents and, and takes responsibility for raising kids. And Bavink says, man, it is true that there are chaotic families and where ter- terrible things are done. It's not true that the answer to that is to do away with the family. The answer to that is to reform the family, to incentivize the family, to allow the church to be the primary environment in which Christian families are finding community and solidarity with one another. But it is interesting. There's a few places in this chapter where he essentially says, as a Christian, if, I have, if I'm coming from biblical principles, I need to be very slow to embrace the next government solution of early child care or you know, state-sponsored um, child rearing because those kinds of interventions always come at the expense of and get in the way of the priority of the family. That also reminds me of like, even in our parenting conferences, we talk about the family being the first form of government that anybody ever really experiences. Here's what Bavink writes, page 93. When some would point to miserable family conditions as an argument for gradually removing the nurture of the children from the parents and handing it over to the state, at that point, let all the defenders and friends of the family join hands and cooperate unitedly to maintain and reform family life, which forms the healthy, natural foundation of society and church and state. There you go. There's his call to action. Let us join together to maintain and reform family life as the foundation. Dusty, I was intrigued when I read on pages 94, and he says it again on 97, the family is a school for the children, but in the first place, it is a school for the parents. Dude, And yes. then he goes on to say, as with living mirrors, children show their parents their own virtues and faults, force them to reform themselves, and teach them how hard it is to govern a person. The family exerts a reforming power upon the parents, which I think is great because we yeah, always think about yeah. like, you know, kids being formed in the context of family. What he's saying is like, yeah, and also your kids are going to form you. Yeah. They're sanctifying for you too. Yeah. What I thought about during that section was how your firstborn kid has a a different picture of your parenting than your last kid. (laughs) And they want to talk about the comparisons of how you got lax. And I want to say like, no, actually we just matured, you know, we just learned some stuff and we were trying it out on the first kid. And now we've grown because this is true. You're, you're learning and and growing the entire time. And this is the, Beautiful thing about Bob Inc.'s approach here. He's both warm-hearted, optimistic, but also realistic of just the family life is, he's going to assert the importance of it, but he's also going to say, but it's this hard, challenging, sanctifying reality, but that's where the life of it is. That That's the good of it. And and I just, I love that he is embracing all of these, these realistic, optimistic things at the same time. Children are a blessing and an enrichment, he writes but they place upon parents serious obligations and they are the object of their apprehensive concern for many years. I resonate with that. Every parent has an apprehensive concern (laughs) for their kids because you just want to know, are they going to make it? Um, And like you said, Chris, a, a very good realism. And I think it's what I want parents or people who want to be parents to hear in this podcast is that statement 
children place upon parents serious obligations. The question I wish more Christian parents would ask is, what are my obligations to my children? Now that I have children, what obligations before God does that place before me? Because in our society, as individualistic as it is, people usually, outside the church, you hear children talked about as almost like a, you know, an, an option, like a nice add-on to your life. You don't hear the, the, the language of obligation of like, how am I going to nurture them, raise them, discipline them, educate them, be responsible for their formation? And when parents have a small sense of that obligation, they tend to be passive in their discipline and nurture and training of their children. When they have a high sense of that obligation before God, they tend to be very faithful in the duties of discipline, nurture, training. And that really has a huge effect both on the children and on the parents. It's interesting to think about that too, just in, in the time frame that you only have children in your home for a really short time. I mean, Bob, you and I can relate to that now uh, in where our kids are at, but that obligation that you have towards your children is pretty short lived. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's not that long that you, that you have to change the trajectory of your life to give yourself away to building a healthy family culture. Edwin Friedman, who I've referenced before, uh, who wrote in the 1980s, talks about uh, the culture of expertise. That we like, we live in this culture that just thinks, man, if we just find the experts, let's just sort of cede our thinking to the experts. And we talked about this in our podcast on scientism as well. It's fascinating to me that Boffink is writing 100 years ago, but he sees the same tendency. Mm-hmm. And so he says that, um, like, he, he says, this is why people advocate for technique when it comes to raising kids. He says, let the process of becoming human be placed under the direction of technical experts for there lies the best hope for the future. The human being will gradually become ennobled. He, under the discipline of science, surely he will become an angel. Radical improvement will come only when the nurture of children is entrusted to specialists and put in the hands of experts. And it sounds from his writing like those things were widely held in his day. Like mm-hmm. this is kind of where society was. And he pushes back and says, yeah, actually, you know what the best environment for a child is? Just a family. Yeah. Not yeah. the experts. Um, I like I like this phrase because it sounds to me like it could have been written by a cranky fundamentalist a few years ago. Listen to this. A powerful, continually growing stream is moving in the direction of technically expert and artificial nurture. Just like the advocates of free love point to the many unhappy marriages in order to bring legal marriage into disrepute, so too defenders of government child care seize with eagerness upon all the miseries and faults of home child care to thereby strengthen their theory and to recommend it as the only real and adequate solution. They use examples of unhappy families not to press for reforming and improving family life, but on the contrary, to undermine the parental home as a nurturing institution and to build a new system of breeding and raising children on the ruins of the family. He's worried that the family is going to be usurped by government intervention. And I like a guy that's worried about that because I'm worried about that as well. And I live a hundred years later. I mean, imagine, imagine what he would think now, you know? And, and I love that where he ends by, emphasizing the superiority of the nurture of the family 
And, and right, right towards the end of the chapter, he says, a person's becoming human occurs within the home. That's just, it's so beautiful. And, and what he says preceding that, like lays that out of like how we are fully formed in this holistic way in the home that we can't be formed in any other way. I want to read more from that section. Yeah, it's a brilliant section. I've got it underlined. Here we go, Bethany. Bottom of page 108. The nurture that takes place within the family possesses a very special character. No school, no daycare center, no government institution can replace or improve upon the family. The children come from the family, grow up in the family without themselves knowing how. They are formed and raised without themselves being able to account for that. The nurture provided by the family is entirely different than that provided by the school. And now he's going to explain the difference. It is not bound to a schedule of tasks and does not apportion its benefit in terms of minutes and hours. It consists not only in instruction, but also in advice and warning, leading and admonition, encouragement and comfort, solicitude and sharing. Everything in the home contributes to nurture. The hand of the father, the voice of the mother, the older brother, the younger sister, the infant in the bassinet, the sickly sibling, the grandmother, grandchildren, uncles, aunts, guests, friends, prosperity and adversity, celebrations and mourning. Everything is serviceable for nurturing each other day by day, hour by hour, without plan, without appointment, without technique. Everything possesses power to nurture apart from being able to analyze and calculate that power. Thousands of incidents, thousands of trivia, thousands of trifles all exert their influence. It is life itself that nurtures, that cultivates the rich, inexhaustible, multifaceted, magnificent life. The family is the school of life because it is the fountain and hearth of life. Amen and amen. That's a good word. It's so good. So good. And his point is, he goes on in the next paragraph to basically say, when you send your kid to school, school is cut up into segments. They're learning math and history and reading. And the, the only goal of a school is just to do little segments of that. It's not a school of life. It's not, you don't, you don't learn and get shaped by all the experiences and relationships that you do in the household. And so his, his, uh, yeah, that line of persons becoming human occurs within the home is such a, is such a profound realization. And this is where I think a Christian understanding of the home needs to be recovered. Yeah. Come on. Um, it feels to me like, you know, the, the benefits of feminism and it's right emphasis on the ways that sometimes Christians and especially conservative Christians has sort of minimized, you know, a woman's role in society and in the workforce and all of that. There's been a pendulum shift now to where what I tend to see in Christian families is a minimizing of the importance of the home to where it's like, Hey, you know what? We got a daycare and we got, you know, we got babysitters and stuff. And so we can just outsource sort of all the formation and shaping and nurture to these various people. And I think what Bavink helps us recover is just a right emphasis on the importance of the home. And I think this is, you know, every social scientist who studies, you know, all the downstream effects that affect human beings would just say, yeah, most of it starts just like in the home. Like if you have a good home life, man, there's, you're, you have a head start in life. And if you have a, a, a troubled home life, that creates a lot of downstream effects. And so the thing I, I care most about for Christian listeners is that we would have a high value on the home, the culture of the home, 
if God has given us children, the, the responsibility we have to nurture them and train them and lead them in everything. That's Deuteronomy 6, that vision of, you know, as you walk by the way and as you sit and as you rise, just that all of life kind of discipleship. There's no replacement for that. And we shouldn't expect there to be. And so I like that Bavinks, he, he rightly sees, yeah, there are problems in the family. The answer is to reform the family and emphasize the family. The answer is not to sort of like try to replace the family with yeah. other structures. He's really fighting that you don't farm it out yeah. to society and just hope for hope for the city to fix it. Yeah. So I think that nurture chapter is, is really profound. And uh, to go back to something we already talked about, I just love that this is Bobbing's well-roundedness again. Is If I wrote a chapter on nurture, as you guys can tell from me talking thus far, it would be all about like, the importance of kids being nurtured and formed and shaped. Only Bavink would say, yeah, also you, you parents need to grow up. And part of how God does that is by giving you some kids, you know, <laughs> like right. yeah. you need to be shaped. And he has this, there's this great paragraph that I didn't read where he talks about, like, think about like a young knuckleheaded guy who has a kid and then suddenly he grows into a really good father. Yeah. And you're like, mm-hmm. how did this guy become this great of a human being? The answer is he had a kid and he realized yeah. like, I got to figure out what I'm doing. And so there's this way that by giving children, God matures us in ways that we couldn't become mature apart from that. And, and there's, so it just, Bavik has this beautiful way of saying it's not all downward. There's actually this upward influence that the family has on parents, grandparents, aunts, uncles, siblings. There's just this, this multifaceted reality of the shaping influence of a family system. And, and likewise, we could say the deforming influence of a family system, right? And so as Christians, valuing and highlighting the importance of the home and the family, um, not just in like a very limited individualistic nuclear sense, but just in, in a way that says like, yeah, this is the environment in which human beings are nurtured and we need to value it. We need to reform it. We need to care about it. And we need to see the beauty of God giving it to us and designing everything else to sort of um, complement it. I would say a couple of things in reflection on these chapters. One is, you know, I come from a, uh, a broken family system and uh, have dedicated quite a bit of time with JC to figuring out how to, what we always call creating a family or a spiritual heritage from scratch. That's what we're, you know, every parent is building the airplane in the air. And I would just say like, if you're doing that for the first time and you're not inheriting and you're not standing on the shoulders of generations having gone before you, then it's, if it's not necessarily in the water for you, you still have a lot of hope in Christ to start doing that now. And it doesn't have to look like the, and it's not going to look like the family system of those, uh, your friends who are standing on those shoulders, uh, for generations of deep spiritual nurture along the way. So you can start now. The other thing I would say is it's really important for Christians to, to emphasize family and at the same time, not let family be above Jesus. An idol. Yeah. 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 Because I think Christians are in danger of that as well. I think mostly we got to fight for it because I think Christians uh, are the outpost for healthy family systems and we got to just be relentless about it while simultaneously not worshiping it, you know? Oh, I'm just always thinking of like, you know, single people listening to this podcast or people who are unable to have children and hearing us talk about family and child rearing and and that feeling like it's a, like it's, it's an imbalance. And part of what I always want to say there is remember that Bavink is writing and we're talking about the church as a whole. And so really what we're talking about is as God's people, 
we need to emphasize the family as the primary place of nurture. You can still do that, whether you have a family, whether you're married or not. Like this, part of what this means is just the church needs to value the institution yeah. of family yep. and, and, you know, support it in whatever ways we can. And sometimes that's, that can look all kinds of different ways. And so sometimes when we talk, because I'm talking as a father, I, I tend to sort of default to like, what does that mean for me? Yeah, same. But really what we're talking about is the church as a whole, if you care about the flourishing and well-being of human beings, then we need to care about the flourishing of families. Yeah. And we can do that while not pretending that family is like some kind of exalted state that, you know, it's, it's like the best form of life and that singleness is different or that if you if God hasn't given you children that you can't participate in that in some way. And Bob Inc. talks about all that. Yeah, we didn't really yeah. read all that stuff, but yeah, he does yeah. a good job, I think, of balancing all that and talking about that God has given lots of different life situations. The one thing we need to care about when it comes to the nurture of human beings is the importance of a family as a primary nurturing environment. Yeah. The way that I love how he writes about those exceptions is he honors those exceptions without making it so much about those exceptions. And I'm speaking as one, like we don't have kids. And so sometimes the way this conversation can, can go is you're in some, you know, sometimes weird situations and you want to be uh, mindful of people who don't have some of these things in their life. But one of the things that we end up doing is we can so emphasize the exceptions that we, we don't talk about the family husband, wife, kids, the way we need to and give it the, the appropriate emphasis. And so I love the way Bob Inc. talks about those exceptions, but he still keeps the eye on the ball of like, hey, what is the normative? Like what really is, it should be the, the, the larger reality it is, husband, wife, and kids. And this is not to say that those exceptions, uh, you can't thrive in those exceptions and they're not real, but at the same time, don't, don't let those exceptions become occupy such a time that we don't talk about what we should be talking about. So I, I love that he, I think he strikes that appropriate balance very thoughtfully. Yeah, he does. The only other thought I'm having is, you know, for people who this, this creates, this is a painful conversation to listen to because they're identifying ways that they've been deformed by their families, mm -hmm. right? Or sinned against by their families mm -hmm. or ways that family has been a discouraging and hard reality. How do we speak to those people at the end of a podcast like this while saying, while Bavink is saying, man, the family is an important place of nurture. Uh, there's also people listening who go like, well, and it didn't nurture me very well. And that's, that's painful. Mm -hmm. My answer to that is uh, because you're speaking kind of directly to me there. I would say you have to absorb that and there's a lot to forgive there. And the only way possible to absorb it is to see all of that through the, through the lens of the cross. And so you have, the only way to make sense, I guess, to say it differently, the only way to make sense of a broken situation and a broken nurturing situation in the family system is through the blood of the cross. Hmm. That's the only way forward. The other thing I would say there is if you're hearing this and reflecting back on some parenting and thinking like, man, we blew it. We didn't nurture well. You know, we became Christians later in life, stuff like that. That's also okay. The grace of God is extended to you and you need to receive that grace yet again. And then maybe go do some apologizing here and there and some repenting along the way, but God's grace and mercy is still extended to you. Amen. What I would add is the pain you're experiencing shows the power and the truth of what Bavink is saying is you, you carry the pain of this not being present. And, and I think he makes a point maybe back in chapter seven that, 
the greater the good, the the more destructive when that thing is distorted. Mm. And so when family, which is meant to be this place of life and flourishing and nurture, goes sideways, the pain is particularly hard and cuts particularly deep. And so there's a reality that on the opposite side of this, you're, you're seeing just how important this is. Mm. And my hope for, for you would be if you have a family now that, as you point out, Dusty, but by the power of Christ and the redemption that's in Christ, that you can rewrite the narrative there, that, yeah. that you can create that heritage that you didn't have and you can because of the power of Christ and because God is for your family. And the Spirit wants to see your family be that place of nurture. If, if you don't have a family, then I think the the sadness and the pain of that, that like God cares, God sees you, that there's there's comfort from the spirit that, that you can experience. But I think this is also where the church is intended to step into, that we're not just our own individual families, but we're a family of families and the church is a family. And so my hope would be that you could experience the type of friendship and relationship that, that you can experience healing and good and, and the kind of nurture that the church is intended to give you. So I think there, there are, there are realities of, yeah, that there is pain there and that, that isn't just going to disappear, but there is hope, whether it's be through the, the redemption story God is writing in your own family or the experience of, of community in the church. That's good. One final point that I want to make is that Bavink in a right and godly way emphasizes obedience. So repeatedly through these two chapters, he just says, hey, if you've gone down the wrong path, if you've, you know, sinned sexually, or if you've failed as a parent, or if you've failed to honor family in the ways you need to, the answer is turn around and walk the other direction. And what I like about Bonvik is without minimizing the grace of the gospel, he also in, in a compelling way says, you got to obey Christ. You got to walk with Christ. And so start doing the things that, are, that God calls us to do in these areas. Um, and walking in obedience is freedom and blessing. So um, the invitation to, um, to walk forward from, from wherever you are into the, into the way of um, what honors the Lord is, uh, is the final invitation you have issues. A goal of this podcast is to equip our own church for discipleship and mission. So if you're a Christian or a church leader in another context, we thank you for listening in. And we pray that this conversation might be helpful to you as you minister in your context. We always love to hear from listeners. So if you have thoughts, questions, or future podcast topics, send an email to podcast at cdomaha.com. Thanks for listening. And we'll see you next Wednesday for another episode of the Wednesday Conversation.